Hello, you're listening to Red Flag Radio. Uh, my name is Ros Ward, and I want to acknowledge that we record this podcast on Aboriginal land, land that was stolen, uh, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We've got a special edition of the podcast today, I think, because for the first time, um, me and Liam, who both work in universities, are going to be able to talk about some of the things we do as unionists and activists in that space, alongside two people who are fantastic unionists and activists, um, Alma, who's in Sydney, and Katie, uh, who's in Melbourne as well. Katie's at Melbourne University, Alma at Sydney University, me and Liam work um, at RMIT. We're all members of the National Tertiary Education Union, and if people have been following, um, there's been quite uh, some activity going on, both with the NTU leadership and with the rank and file membership of that union. And um, we thought it would be great to just talk about some of what's been happening to try to uh, help to put a kind of socialist perspective, which is what we do on this podcast quite proudly and openly. We're revolutionary socialists. We want to get rid of capitalism and we're unionists and we think unions should be fighting for their members and for workers um, basically at all times. Between us, we've clocked up many years of membership um, of the National Tertiary Education Union. I was—I didn't actually add up how much we've got between us, but um, I think I'm on about 10 years. Liam, how much are you on? Uh, almost 20 years or like, you know, 20 calendar years, but there's a few, few years of sessional where I didn't have work from one semester to the next, so probably 17 years all up. And what about you, Alma? Almost 10 years as well. And Katie? Uh, about 13 years. About how long? 13 years. Okay. So 10, 20, 40, 50 years between <laughs> us of membership of the NTU. That's not bad. It's longer than um, the NTU's been so, around. Well, there you go. We've, we've outlived it already. <laughs> um <laughs> So obviously all of this comes in the context of the COVID-19 crisis and uh, clearly, I mean, the economic impact is continuing to reverberate internationally and in Australia. But one of the big industries has been uh, that has been hit by this crisis has been higher education. And so right from the beginning, uh, the kind of bosses organisation of the university sector said they were thinking that the impact would be in the region of $4 billion of lost revenue, which is a loss mainly of international student fees, obviously because international students um, can't get into the country or they've had to leave the country or they may not come back into the country. So um, what that means is that 40% of student revenue uh, is under threat, although not necessarily disappeared already but predicted loss in the sector. One comparison that I read about that, um, the scale of it is basically if every vegetable crop in Australia was wiped out for a year, that would cost about $4 billion. So it's kind of big. It's about the size of the auto industry when it was uh, finally shut down in Australia, basically. 
So, um, so what that's looking like now um, is the context for the union's response and what we're going to be talking about today. So, Katie, you've been around obviously for a while in the sector. What what um, what's useful to kind of think about around that context of the university um, model as it stands in Australia today? Well, what's happening in Australia, I think, is actually part of an international phenomenon. And there's been an awful lot written, of course, um, given that it's uh, higher education, about the neoliberalisation of the sector over the past 30 years. Um, one of my favourite articles that goes over it um, is an article by Rebecca Barragos in the Marxist Left Review um, in 2013. Story that really, I think, goes back. The neoliberalisation goes back into the Hawke government of the 1980s. Um, when they sought to be able to cut funding by broadening the funding base of universities beyond government, and that included introducing student fees in the form of pet debt and encouraging financial partnerships with business. So that chronic underfunding coupled with the increasing deregulation um, has led directly to, I think, a range of problems. <clears throat> the most obvious one, given the current crisis, is the reliance on international student fees for income and the, I think you said the number of international students have doubled since 2003 so there's over 400,000 uh, in Australia today but they're treated by the universities as cash cows and really nothing more than that worth billions of dollars uh, and it sort of turns the higher education sector into an export industry and that coupled with an explosion in the number of domestic students but not an equivalent increase in the number of staff. So as the staff to student ratios um, or the student to staff ratios is way past what it was in the early 80s, even after the introduction of free education in, in the 70s, that led, has led to a real problem with workloads uh, on really all university campuses. But the government funding per student has declined and that's been a bipartisan problem. So the last major uh, cut in funding really came from the Gillard Labor government who in just two goes just wiped billions of dollars out of um, out of the sector. So the Labor Party just as much to blame. Uh, so you have uh, the drive um, to marketing which it comes from the need to chase the international student um, market as well as um, the uh, getting rid of the cap on domestic students. And so universities need to market themselves as, as these products, um, or the education is product um, much more. The pressure to partner with business and the need to attack staff wages and conditions has really corporatised university management. We then see their role as implementing uh, all of the attacks that entrench those problems of, of workloads and student-to-staff ratios uh, and um, corporatisation um, much more. So it's really the case that the crisis in the sector began way before um, the pandemic. Um, it's just that this has really exposed, I think, the the limitations of what or, or the problems with with the sector that kind of that, that it was it's really been built on on sand at, at the moment mm -hmm. it's not true like there hadn't been an economic crisis for, for most universities they have actually managed to maintain their income through 
the international students and increases in student numbers, um, but uh, it was a, definitely a risky business that mm. they, they went into and they're reaping um, the, the windfall of that now. Mm. Mm. It's a very fragile business model, <laughs> even though it's a business model, you know, like to rely on international students. And there have been, an, you know, if you look back over what people have written about the Australian university sector in particular um, and what would happen even if it was just Chinese students who weren't able to or, or didn't choose to study in Australia anymore, the scale of that impact. And I think the other thing just to add to that is the um, filling of the gaps or in workload has been done not by employing ongoing staff but employing casuals. And so Australia has one of the highest rates of casual teaching um, in universities of anywhere in the world. And I think that partly comes from that whole business approach. Well, what's the cheapest way, the most flexible way for management to kind of do the tick the boxes of what you need to give an international student for them to think they're a happy customer? Um, and they're going to obviously do you know what you would do in other businesses and there's so there's this contradiction all the time between what people think universities should be like and and what they're like and now it's sort of all falling apart at the seams mm. um so in this crisis uh what they've done initially university management have said well obviously if there's a loss in income who's going to pay for it well we spend most of our money on staff, so then we'll just have to get rid of staff. So that's sort of their other thing. They've spent all the international student money on nice buildings and marketing and consultants, but when they need to save money, they say we'll get rid of staff. So they've been saying from the beginning, this amount of money is the equivalent to about 20,000 jobs, which is huge, obviously. Um, and then... I guess if we get to the union response to that, um, Alma, do you want to describe? So we've had this four billion dollars, you know, hole in the sector. Twenty thousand jobs could be lost. What do you think the, you know, what were you thinking the union might do, or what did they do? And then how did you react to that initial response? Yeah, well, I mean, when the sector is facing such a massive crisis, um, the last thing you would expect is your union to sit down at the negotiating table and um, work out how the workers are going to pay for the crisis. But unfortunately, that's exactly what has happened in the higher education sector. So um, we were told about a month ago we... Uh, got wind of this, um, that our national executive has been negotiating with vice-chancellors, uh, the vice-chancellors um, association called Universities Australia um, and the federal government about exactly how to, how to make up the budget shortfalls, essentially. And this is highly problematic because instead of fighting for um, jobs instead of fighting for conditions um, and wages. Um, essentially, what the union officials have done is said, well, uh, workers should pay for the crisis. So it was sent to us in an email um, by Matthew McGowan on the 8th of April um, and essentially saying that the, uh, 
quote, to protect jobs, we as union may need to consider measures that would never, we would never normally consider. These may include deferral of pay rises, providing the ability to direct taking of leave or other cost-saving measures. Um, and then it went on to say that union <coughs> members will be asked to ballot to approve any negotiated outcome. What what has come to light since then um, is that there was a leak in The Guardian that actually exposed that the national executive were also negotiating pay cuts. So the initial email to members that was sent out um, talked about deferral of pay rises um, and other attacks on conditions, but it's actually far more serious than that. Um, I'm a national counsellor, as uh, Katie and Liam, and we were briefed on some of the um, negotiations. We were briefed on some of the things that the national executive are negotiating, and some of the, and they included um, the possibility of wage cuts for earnings of forty thousand dollars and above, um, and the possibility of a ten percent wage cut above forty thousand. So that's that's a really huge. Deal, but I mean, if I could just talk about the bigger picture for a second, I think the key thing is a union should not be negotiating away conditions and wages. We should be mounting a serious campaign demanding as an injection of federal funding into the higher education sector, one of the most important sectors into, um, in the economy. University workers have industrial power. Um, and we are important, and we sh that should be the centre of our campaign. Um, instead, what has happened is, as, as Katie pointed out, the over-reliance of the international student fee dollar um, means that there is a pressure to keep the sector profitable. And unfortunately, our union leadership has accepted this logic and accepted that we are somehow partners in this uh, business model. And so instead of saying, uh, actually, um, the bosses should pay for the crisis, we didn't cause it, and the government should pay, they've basically, without any consultation of members and without any um, warning, just told people that they're willing to trade off on wages and conditions. In terms mm -hmm. of how uh, I've responded and how other union members have responded across the country, I think, firstly, it was an extremely jarring experience to receive that kind of communication and then later on to see the, um, you know, the Guardian article with the extent of what was being given away. Um, a lot of members were shocked that, the, that secret negotiations were happening um, but actually have not just accepted it. Um, since then, there has uh, there has mushroomed a national campaign against the cuts. It's uh, taken the form of the No Concessions campaign. Um, Sydney University was the first place that passed a motion uh, rejecting the politics of compromise. So I moved the motion um, just before the Easter weekend, uh, basically censuring the national executive for the um, politics of compromise and for having the secret negotiations that give up things that we have fought for for generations. Uh, that motion had overwhelming support. It was voted up 117 in favour and only two against. Um, and this is at very short notice. I mean, the email came out on the Wednesday. The members' meeting happened on the Thursday. So that shows how his soft people were with the national office um, for having done this. Yeah. 
our comrades across the world. Um, Liam, you know, we work at RMIT and a lot of people who work at RMIT know how much the vice chancellor gets paid, a million dollars. Knows how much property assets, you know, we have all around the city, putting RMIT in the top 10 um, property owning businesses, basically, in Victoria, literally, uh, and so on. So, the idea that in that situation you would offer to give up concessions, take pay cuts and that kind of stuff, how did that land with the people you knew, you know, you've worked with in the union around RMIT at that point? Uh, it, well, as Elmer just said, there was actually, there was an immediate shock. Uh, a lot of my workmates and uh, people around the leadership of the RMIT branch were outraged. Um, it just, also happens that that email from the general sec- from the national general secretary on that Wednesday, uh, on that same evening, the Wednesday evening, uh, there was a meeting of the Victorian Division Council, which I'm on. Um, I went to that meeting and tried to sort of, uh, you know, raise a discussion around the atrocious email that we'd all just received a few a few hours earlier, uh, and that um, that motion was never put. It was deferred uh, and was supposed to be uh, put via email. Uh, and here we are, you know, some four weeks later, and the thing has still never, never been put. Surprise, surprise. Um, but what that meant, though, is that, that the next day, so the Thursday, which was the same day that the Sydney University branch was voting, um, as Elmer just spoke of, that same day I sent an email around to about 150 members of the NTU in my own school explaining what had happened the night before and making it clear that, you know, as a member of the RMIT branch committee and as a delegate for this school, I was not endorsing anything that they'd read in the email from the general secretary the day before and i was overwhelmed with uh responses from members saying yeah we were shocked to get that email it's an outrage uh, a number of people saying i one one phrase i remember someone emailed me and said i didn't realize i joined the sda which is symptomatic of you know people so on one level there's this shock this surprise but that remark also points to that there's a bigger problem in our union movement here that people are also aware of and that people have this sense that even in the crisis, we want one thing. We want our union to stand up for us, to defend our wages, to defend our paying conditions, not to just give them away. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone's kind of chomping at the bit to lead a big rebellion immediately and overthrow, you know, but it it points to that sense that people think management should have to fight against us. They shouldn't, we shouldn't be giving them things. If they're going to, if they're going to squeeze concessions out of us and they should bloody well win it on the battlefield. And, you know, that, that general sense of that we should fight uh, was, was there. And, and it remains there now. The challenge, of course, is, you know, how we kind of organize that sense because, you know, we're, we're up against a big sort of, you know, you know, the odds are stacked against us, but but that sentiment is very clear. Um, so, yeah, people were shocked and people so were glad to get a lead. Yeah. Let's talk about how we organize some of the resistance to that then because mm. it is a challenging thing when the national leadership of a union that, you know, for the most part, people sort of trust them and think they have the interests of the members at heart because why wouldn't they? There's a very collegial kind of atmosphere in the NTU. It kind of comes with the sector and the and the types of people who work in universities that want to find points of agreement and so on. So, Katie, the statement that came out as part of the what is what was dubbed the NTU fight back campaign or the no concessions campaign was a pretty um, straightforward set of demands, if you like, or things that we won't accept, 
Can you talk a bit more about that and why that has been an important kind of statement uh, to set out and to spread around for the campaign? Yeah. Um, I think just following on from Alma and, and Liam, I had a very similar response to um, from my workmates as well uh, from response to that email that was sent around and it kind of surprised me as, as well. Our branch is not usually known for being as engaged uh, as, say, Sydney Uni and RMIT. Um, and sometimes you have to struggle a little bit to interest people in, in stuff that's happening in the in the union. But people were contacting me uh, to say that they were unhappy with what was going on. So we assumed, you know, when we all sort of got together and the Sydney Uni vote happened, sort of realised that there was something uh, going on out there and we had to find a way to tap into that and do something with it. And so I think a, a statement like the one that we made, uh, it does two things. It shows the extent of the opposition within the, the union. I think nearly a 1,000 people, a 1,000 university workers, workers from all over the country have signed the petition. And given that it started with a scrappy bunch of five or six of us, um, I think that uh, really does show how widespread um, the opposition is. And it's also, I think, an organising tool. So the statement lays out, you know, what we think are the main problems with the union leaders, uh, leadership strategy, the whole idea about that sacrifices can, can help some people, um, that many, many universities are actually extremely wealthy institutions. Uh, and so giving up our conditions and our wages for such institutions actually sets a terrible precedence uh, for workers throughout Australia, no matter what sector they're in, and that we reject the way that this has been carried out, that there's been no genuine discussion or consultation with members. And since we wrote that statement, it's gotten worse. You know, the undemocratic manoeuvres that have been put into play are pretty uh, surprising or shocking. And, of course, that we demand that the government properly fund higher education and, in the meantime, university management should use their lines of credit and other means to sustain employment and conditions. And that includes the continuing employment of casuals on current or, you know, now previous uh, contracts. So that statement sort of laid out the bare bones, as you said, um, of what we thought uh, was wrong with the national executive strategy uh, and some of the things that we think should actually be done. But it was, as I said, an organising tool um, to get in touch with people on campuses across Australia who were interested in organising or helping out a no concessions or vote no campaign. And actually through our contacts, through that statement, that's resulted in several motions put to, to members' meetings um, and the establishment of campaign meetings uh, on branch, in branches that we wouldn't otherwise have had uh, any uh, connection with. And I should explain just in terms of the kind of procedure of how these changes might take place. What was basically suggested in that first email from the National Secretary was that um, their negotiations would result in a sort of template of changes that university managers um, in individual institutions could then apply to the enterprise bargaining agreements that are negotiated every four years on, on campuses. And so what that would require to change those agreements is a vote of uh, the workers in that 
organization. And so our vote no message is, you know, if this, if this is the thing that's going to happen and it seems very likely that it is, then people should say, no, we won't accept any changes to our enterprise bargaining agreement. Um, and we don't believe that that's the way to address this crisis. So that's sort of the, the whole vote no thing. And in the knowledge that now only 24 hours notice minimum is required to go to one of those ballots. So the idea that that could happen, you know, 24 hours from this minute right now and that we need to be organised well in advance to um, put up a decent no vote and even potentially win some of those no votes on the strongest campuses. Because what we've seen, Alma, with your motion at Sydney Uni, the motion uh, at RMIT and at Melbourne University, three of the biggest what would be considered by the NTU leadership the most important branches in the country have rejected their approach. Mm. Um, why was it important to kind of put motions in meetings? That, that can seem kind of like a bureaucratic type thing to do. You don't change anything by just passing a motion about it. But So what, what was that strategy about and why has that been important? Well, I think there's a number of reasons uh, it's important. Firstly, the most important thing is that it involves the membership. So, um, you know, the whole premise of these negotiations have been that they're happening behind closed doors, that there are people in the senior leadership of the union who are miles away from what ordinary members are experiencing on the ground uh, they are determining the fate of hundreds of thousands of workers in the university sector behind closed doors, negotiating away extremely serious uh, concessions, so wage cuts, uh, attacks on leave, attacks on the teaching research balance, so many things. Um, and so, you know, one of the only ways that members can have input and say into uh their fate at, in the workplace is through union meetings. And so uh, putting it, putting a motion uh, at members' meetings is extremely important. It gives people an opportunity to discuss and debate. Um, it tells people that um, they have a right to, like, criticise the national leadership just because uh, we have, um, you know, just because the national leadership are... Uh, doing these things doesn't mean that we should roll over and accept it. Um, so that's one one thing. Um, there's a couple of other things. One is that the, the motions that were passed, um, well, Sydney University is significant in the sense that it's the largest, it's not the largest anymore, but it has traditionally been the largest <laughs> uh, university in the sector um, in terms of union membership. Um, but it tends to set the conditions for the rest of the sector. So to have Sydney University and then the other two uh, largest branches in the country vote against the politics of uh, trade-offs is significant. It sends a strong message uh, on... Uh, it sends a strong message to the leadership um, and it sends a strong message to management as well because whilst we have... Um, you know, people in suits sitting around a table, like deciding the fate of um, all of these workers, it's important for uh, management to know that actually thousands and thousands and thousands of people 
don't agree that they should be the ones that are forced to pay for the crisis. Um, all the various staff who are being attacked in different ways, whether it's casuals losing jobs or fixed-term staff losing jobs or uh, us suffering a pay cut or fraction reductions eventually, um, we yeah, we reject the notion that we should be the ones to pay. The other reason that it's so crucial um, is that actually this is just phase one of the crisis. So um, I think that what's happening is the bosses have, or university management have always wanted to restructure their workforces in, in various ways. And to a certain extent, they have been able to do that um, slowly uh, and have eroded our conditions over, the many, over many years. But there's a lot of other things they want to do. I think that they are using this uh, crisis as a way to go even further. So th they would, the bosses would love it, for example, if there was a strict uh, division between teaching and research, for example. They would love it if they could force many, many more academics onto 80% teaching contracts. Uh, they would love it if they could reclassify everyone and pay people ten dollars or $20,000 less a year. Um, they, want, they want all of us to be agile. Um, they want to. They want to be able to mold what we do. Uh, they want to be able to control the kind of research that people do at universities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think they're using this as a, as um, an opportunity. And so mm -hmm. this is phase one. Um, phase one is going to be them, you know, placing in supposedly temporary measures um, that are actually just a preamble for what they're going to do next year. So next year, mm -hmm. uh, enterprise bargaining agreements expire across the country um, and who knows what that's going to look like. But if we accept major concessions now, it just sends the message to the bosses that actually they can come after a lot more next year as well. So, um, yeah, it's really important that there has been this fight back in the three largest branches, but also it's not just the three largest branches. I mean, the campaign is, is national in nature. Um, it's just worth emphasising that the three largest branches have passed motions against this deal. Yeah. So in that light, Liam, when the national leadership of the NTU think, okay, our strongest branches, our members are activating, which is what they always want us to do, you know, we want to turn our members into activists that they are, they've turned, <laughs> or some of us already were, um, you know, motions are being passed, materials are being produced, um, new members are signing up to the union as well, which is worth noting, mm -hmm. that you, that is sort of the common theme in times of, of uh, conflict and attack and so on, people do join the union. So you would think in response to this, uh, the national leadership might think, okay, maybe we were maybe we were wrong to um, start these negotiations. So, how did they respond given all of that? Uh, with really the opposite of uh, how we would want them to. So, yeah, I agree. We would we would have liked a uh, you know a union leadership that would say, well, that wouldn't have started this shit in the first place, but at the very least would have said, oh, okay, look, the the membership are pissed off at what we're doing and they actually want to have a fight. We should we should. We should push this fight further. We should organise it. We should, you know, this is a chance to build up a serious campaign, not just uh, to pressure the federal government into funding the sector properly, but to, yeah, to prepare for the next round of in enterprise bargaining or whatever. Whatever would have gone through a union bureaucrat's head, there's plenty of positive things that could have happened apart from what they did. What they actually did uh, was they started a campaign 
uh, to try to undermine the opposition, to try to silence all dissent. Um, they went around and picked off uh, some of the sort of less organized, uh, smaller branches, uh, where who you know branches where there wouldn't even have been an inkling that there was a debate happening, and they rammed through motions at those branches supporting uh, the NE strategy without even indicating there was actually a debate happening, uh, you know, across the country. Uh, they also organized this ridiculous farce that was a sort of fake national council meeting. Uh, as Elmer said, the three of us are on national council, and um, so we know the rules. Only meets once a year, and it's meant to have fourteen days notice uh, before that meeting. Fourteen days also to consider the motions. Uh, yeah, so they co- cobbled together this sham meeting, and they they knew they couldn't call it a national council meeting, so they called it first a national council briefing, and then they changed it to a meeting of national councillors. I mean, this these underhanded sort of tactics to try to create a sense that that everything that they were doing in their appalling kind of class collaboration concessionary strategy was somehow endorsed by. Uh, the broader membership and by the peak bodies in the union, such as, you know, these branches and even the National Council. All of this is like incredibly dubious and underhanded uh, and, and a clear attempt to try to silence dissent. Um, it's been actually an eye-opener to me just to see how willing they are uh, to try to silence their critics. Mm. And even in Alma's case, this is the... the um the Zoom world that we're in now as well, trying to navigate these things, that people can mute you in a meeting mm. just completely unilaterally. It's outrageous, the stuff that's been going on. Or or change the time, speaking time to one minute and then mute you and all of these kind of things that you just sort of, yeah. I mean, you know that they're possible, but then when you actually see them happening. One of the worst ones I've heard is that one of the South Australian branches refused to allow members to put motions to the members' meeting. It's atrocious. Said that you have to be on the branch committee in order to move a motion. What a lie. Yeah. What an outrageous yeah. lie. The way of the revolution I mean, there are some challenges. Obviously, there are a lot of challenges. I mean, this is a campaign at the moment where we're fighting against or trying to change the position of the leadership of the NTU while at the same time campaigning for the government to fund the sector better uh, and also trying to organise on the ground in our in our own um, institutions for people to know what's going on, to be prepared to vote no, to kind of help uh, build that campaign. One of the big challenges is the fact that um, right from the start of the crisis, uh, the casuals, who we explained earlier, do so much of the work in universities, can be given one hour notice and then they're gone, they're stood down. So sort of from day one, uh, hundreds around the country have just lost their hours or been stood down. And so people naturally think, well, what can we do immediately to try to save some of these jobs or these hours that casuals have? And the idea being posed by the national leadership is, well, if the ongoing staff sacrifice something, maybe you could save the casuals. What uh, What do you think about that argument, Katie, in terms of, I mean, you work in a library, there's casuals in the library. Surely you could take a pay cut and give them a few hours. Why wouldn't you do it? <laughs> this argument really, really gets my goat, so um, prepare yourselves for a rant. Uh, I think one of the reasons that it's so reprehensible is that it appeals to people's better nature. 
people who work in universities aren't nasty. They do think if so, if the union and the bosses tell them to make a sacrifice to help their workmates, then they're willing to do it. So we've had, you know, we've had to sort of fi- figure out how to uh, counter that argument. Um, but it is just, I think it's reprehensible for a union leadership, particularly a union leadership that themselves are on hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, um, to be telling the rest of us um, that they need to make, that we need to make sacrifices. Uh, it's an extremely conservative me- idea and it feeds into this idea too that um, university workers are privileged. There's over 120,000 people working in higher education and many of them are on the median wage and many are casual or short-term contract staff who don't have job security. So I'd like someone to explain to me where the privilege is in that. Mm. Um, There's also no evidence to suggest that agreements between unions and employers that trade existing conditions and wages um, for some sort of job guarantees actually ever worked. Um, I'm doing a PhD in labour history um, in uh, the manufacturing industry. Just ask the Holden workers or look at the long-term situation of Australian manufacturing um, or the ACTU ALP Accord um, of the 1980s. Um, so that agreement was the idea that all unions would trade off larger wage rises um, for the government um, uh, putting in more um, spending on the so-called social wage, education, health and so on. Um, of course, the increasing spending didn't happen and what it led to instead pretty directly and almost immediately was the greatest transfer of wealth from workers' pay to profits in Australian history. It, so there's nothing in all of the verbal reports that we've received from the NTU that indicates that they've been able to buck this historical trend um, and get watertight agreements um, that could be stitched up um, to, to provide job security. A couple of other short-term points. Uh, Alma made, oh, sorry, a couple of other short points. Alma made the uh, point already um, that this is a long-term crisis. Um, we're told that these sacrifices are meant to be temporary, but what happens in six to eighteen months when the economic crisis is, you know, really just setting in? We expect the universities to give back our conditions, um, particularly when uh, the enterprise agreements are up for negotiation. It's seriously dangerous for a union to run this argument that their members should make sacrifices and that they're privileged because what happens when we get a university that turns around and decides to run a ballot on an enterprise agreement variation that doesn't have the support of the union? Um, And we have had some indications that some universities are thinking about doing that. So how are we meant to counter the university's propaganda um, when they'll no doubt be arguing exactly the same thing that our union is? Um, so a couple of other things. Uni staff have been paying for shortfalls in government funding for years, a decade actually. Uh, this is what I was talking about with uh, the history of neoliberalisation of higher education. Um, at Melbourne Uni just a few years ago, the university sacked 540 non-academic staff in one go and that was in the middle of the good times. Um <laughs> so one of the ways that this our argument for sort of hitting home at Melbourne University is because you can just say, well, look at what the university does to us when things are going well for them. Um, now they're making us try to pay for it again when there's a crisis. Um, we need to run a serious campaign to pressure the government to fund universities properly. 
but at the same time, the union is making the argument that universities can make up the shortfall by cutting staff wages and conditions. So that's just letting the government uh, off the hook. And finally, like I don't see how uh, the sacrifices that we're being asked to make in uh, the short to, to medium term would help the thousands of casuals who have already been laid off. Mm. So there are a bunch of political arguments like that to be made um, in response to some of the false claims that the leadership are making. But there's a whole bunch of kind of organising that's going on on the ground. And Alma, you're at the forefront of that at Sydney Uni, you know, talking to members, organising area meetings, kind of mapping out um, mapping out the workplace and the workforce and so on. Um, you've had a lot of experience in that. What are some of the lessons that you're bringing in to this campaign and some of the things that you're organising next? Okay, well, um, just quickly on what are we doing on the ground right now. I think the most important thing that union members in the university sector can be doing uh, now on the ground is organising for a no vote. Uh, we know from various discussions and rumours that there is probably going to be a ballot of members nationally um, and we can't wait until that's announced to do the preparation work. We need to be getting out there, um, organising local area meetings, having discussions with people, going through all the various arguments about why we, it should not be ordinary uh, workers that pay for the crisis. So... To that effect, I've been, like Ross said, um, you know, organising various meetings, uh, discussing with my colleagues around campus. Um, and I think that's it's really crucial because, you know, this national framework that is going to be released eventually um, is, like, it's not just that it's going to be a step back for our conditions, but it uh, it's significant that there are rank-and-file members uh, revolting against it. Um, and in the end, we're going to have to fight it locally, whichever way it looks like, in the various campuses as well. So if we're not, if we're not doing that preparation work now, if we're not preparing for it now, it, we're just going to struggle later. So just one final issue I wanted to raise around um, some of the arguments that have been coming up. It's been counterposed in some places that our campaign to vote no doesn't do the job of pushing the government to fund the sector more and that what we should be concentrating on is um, protests and campaigning um, to Dan Tian and so on to give us more money for the sector. I don't think those two things are counterposed, but Liam, do you want to say something about that? Yeah, I, yeah, it has, that argument has come up around the traps. I think it's um, it's... If we're arguing that the government needs to fund the $5 billion shortfall, well, then why would we set about by saying that we're going to reduce the size of that shortfall by, by pushing down our own wages? It's actually nonsensical and it runs counter to what should be the principled uh, you know, left-wing position, which is that the government should fund not just the $5 billion shortfall, but the whole sector. You know, like we're not... If we want to argue for a free, fully funded public education system, our starting point is that... And it will cost this much because that's what our wages cost. We don't say, oh, we want you to fund the whole sector, but we'll do it cheap. You know, we'll take a pay cut. So, why would we then argue that in this case? Our starting, if, the more that we're willing to accept uh, 
pay cuts now or any kind of reduction of our paying conditions right now uh, is essentially saying to the federal government, you don't actually need to fund this. We're not asking you to fund the shortfall. You know, the federal government is playing hardball right now because they've already said no. The vice chancellor asked them for the money, the $5 billion, and the federal government said no. Our job then is to say, well, fucking tough luck. That's what it's going to cost. And we are not backing down. We are demanding you find $5 billion. You found hundreds of billions of dollars to build fucking submarines. You can find $5 billion for education and then some. You know, going on the front foot actually is part of the bigger project of fighting for a decent, fully funded, accessible public education system. You don't do that by backing down. Yeah. I mean, and and, uh, in all likelihood, we're not uh, delusional about the fact that probably in the end some concessions will be made, but in some you know, it's the idea of where, how you fight, what you demand, what you stand for, how you organise, and that's sort of the history of the union movement that you've mm. been looking at as well, Katie, that even if you do lose, the way you lose actually really matters a lot because, as we've said several times in this, this is phase one of a crisis that's set to continue for years and years and years. And so we need to be organised now to build those kind of rank-and-file networks, delegate networks, people who – have a political approach um, to being a trade unionist and a worker in the university, that can stand us in good stead for the future. So, Katie, do you want to finish with sort of um, what we want to build on from this point on? And I will just say it's the 8th of May today. Things may have changed by the time you listen to this podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously organising in the, the age of Zoom is, quite different. Um, I've honestly found it a little bit of help too because uh, I work on a, at a university that has like eight to 15,000 staff spread across campuses in literally the four directions of Melbourne. But we've been able to have meetings with people from um, the Victorian College of the Arts in South Bank, um, the Veteran Vet and Ag School uh, in Werribee uh, and everywhere in between. As so um, I've actually found that it has been, a, you know, we've been able to reach out uh, a bit beyond the kind of usual um, suspects uh, as well, like the library and the arts faculty and so on. Um, and Which will be good for the future too, I think, in terms of oh, yeah, absolutely. bridging but, those divides, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not since so, the, the major sackings that I mentioned earlier at Melbourne Uni have has there been a feeling of um, of people wanting to get organised and interested in getting organised um, in in the union? People realise that this is going to be a serious uh, crisis, and that the universities are going to try and make us pay, and so they are trying to organise to defend themselves and and their workmates. Um, so, like, what's next? I think really the first part of organising is just to uh, get our workmates and our, the other members of the union to actually know what's happening and to provide the arguments and even the information um, that's been lacking from our union and the university. So we've been super busy with um, Zoom meetings, just like um, everyone else. Um, so we've focused a lot on the, the members' meetings um, to get those motions passed, to give a sense that there is this groundswell of opposition out there. But now we're kind of really trying to focus on that kind of local uh, organising, talking to our workmates and our um, 
and our fellow union members um, getting together all of the material that you need to be able to provide um, the arguments to um, take a stand against this, you know, their arguments. Um, we know too that, as I think other people have mentioned before, that some unis want to ballot um, by the end of the month uh, or very shortly anyway, and that because the government recently changed their notification period um, from a week to a day, that it's actually really urgent that we get uh, organised now, that we get all of the material and we have a network of people across all of the universities who are ready to go. When the universities turn around and say, right, now is the time to ballot, we know who we can contact in each faculty and each school to say, here's the material that you need to get out to your workmates, um, not just union members, but all the workmates who will be voting on these ballots. Um, and that actually takes a long time to organise. <laughs> Most university campuses don't have delegates networks and activist networks. And we need to start to develop that to, and with a sense of real urgency because the urgency um, uh, is there. And so that's, yeah, we've been trying to do that on as many campuses um, mm. as, as we can. Um, but real, as, as you mentioned, this feels really unprecedented, um, at least in my 13 odd years in, in the union. There hasn't been this kind of groundswell of interest and activism uh, and engagement. And so we hope if we can actually train people to be union activists and union delegates, then this is going to be really important um, for the future. So I'm really uh, blown away by what we've been able to achieve and what the people, you know, who've only just recently got in touch with us have, have been able to achieve in, in such a short um, period of time. Mm. It kind of feels, even though we're up against a huge um, block, uh, it kind of feels optimistic. Yeah, that's a fantastic note to end on. Um, NTU Fight Back is the Facebook page where you can find all of this information. Uh, and there's also a pledge there to pledge to vote no. But even if you don't work in the university sector, a lot of people know someone who does. So please um, pass this podcast on and pass that information on to them as well. Um, thank you, Katie, Alma, Liam. Um, we've got a go immediately or get organizing we are organizing and um yeah you're listening to red flag radio we have universities to win and we have a world to win <laughs> <laughs>